Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove. My name is Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 14, The Resurrection of Robert Browning. After a final glimpse from your pillow, you close your eyes for the night and drift into sleep. You dream of a void. A deep chant emerges, growing ever louder and stronger. The sounds at first caress you, just a tickle, then a tingle, then a buzz, then tremors, hums, rumblings, pulsations, and oscillations so intense that distinctions and unities dissolve in two. You're looking down at a room. It's the 23rd of July of 1855. The married poets Elizabeth and Robert Browning are attending a seance conducted by none other than the illustrious medium Daniel Hume. They sit around the table in silence as Hume moves his hands in large theatrical gestures. He then declares, I have established contact with your son, Robert, the son you thought you lost in infancy. He wishes to materialize here so that you and he can once again peer into each other's infinite eyes, although, he adds, he has never been truly gone. Hume pinches the center of a black cloth on the table and slowly draws it upwards. Underneath the folds, a glowing face begins to appear. Enraged, Browning jumps out of his seat, his chair clattering behind him, and grabs the apparition on the table with both hands. Your vision begins to dim, but you hear Browning angrily shout as he wrestles with Hume, I'll have you and everyone present know that I've never lost a son in infancy, and what's more, this so-called spirit is nothing but your left foot. The incident I described is said to have actually occurred. Unlike his wife, Elizabeth Browning, Robert had always been skeptical of the claims of spiritualism, and especially the words and deeds of its many mediums, who were living grand and storied lives on the basis of what he considered to be nothing more than hoaxes and frauds. After the experience that I just described, Browning wrote a polemic letter to the Times, stating that the whole display of hands, spirit utterances, etc. was a cheat and imposture. Nearly ten years after the incident, Browning, with his passion still present, if tempered by a certain distance and wisdom, expressed his thoughts in a poem he published called Mr. Sludge, the Medium. The monologue was unmistakably modelled on his experiences with Daniel Hume and his circles. The poem explores some of the great and unanswerable questions about spiritualism from the skeptic's perspective. The true mystery for Browning, and many of you I imagine, is not how such phenomena were possible, it's obvious enough from a certain perspective that any and all physical manifestations were caused by trickery or sleight of hand of some kind or another. His question was rather, how do people such as Daniel Hume, who even if they really believe they are in contact with the dead, must themselves know that they are using tricks, justify their lives of fraud and deceit? And what's more, how is it that millions of scientifically minded people, even when confronted by proven fakery, continue to be convinced that the dead were contacting the living in a spiritual revolution. In reflecting on spiritualism, which we can now broaden out to include phenomena such as the UFO and alien abduction craze, it's clear that even as a society founded upon rationality and logic, there is space for compelling and incredibly widespread social delusion. Either that, or you have to believe that people really are in some way experiencing what they say they are. These are the themes and questions that Browning addresses in the poem, without the aliens, of course. The monologue opens just where my story at the beginning left off, with Sludge the Medium caught red-handed, or perhaps red-footed in this case, as a fraudster. Here's how it opens. Now, sir, don't expose me. Just this once. This was the first and only time, I'll swear. 
Look at me, see, I kneel, the only time I swear I ever cheated. Yes, by the soul of her who hears, your sainted mother, sir. All except this last accident was truth, this little kind of slip. And even this, it was your own wine, sir, the good champagne. I took it for Catawba, you're so kind, which put the folly in my head. From there, Sludge goes on to defend his life of trickery and fraud. Browning, through Sludge, explores the fine lines and interrelationships between truth and lies, and particularly those lies we tell ourselves so often that we begin to believe them. Sludge is of course aware he's a fraud, but he has his ways of justifying his actions. At heart, he believes that he is working towards a greater truth, the greater truth of strange and mysterious spiritual developments, and a rediscovery of the ancient and eternal love underlying all religion. He therefore lies to teach the truth, and what could be more human than that? Well, it's a fascinating and complex poem, and it's one that created quite a lot of controversy in its time on at least two counts. Firstly, Browning was seen to be arrogantly attacking a movement that saw itself as entirely rational, optimistic, and beautiful. Remember that after this poem, the spiritualist movement would continue to gather pace and power for another 40 years at least. After all, how could so many thousands of materializations, many witnessed by great scientific minds, all be hoaxes? It's very strange, I'll agree. Connected to this, and perhaps more seriously, Browning was seen as attacking and undermining his own wife's good sense, who, as we mentioned, was at the seance where Hume tried to pass off his foot as Browning's son, yet continued to believe in the movement and Hume himself. The argument was that while of course some people would seek to profit through trickery, that didn't mean that all mediums were complete frauds. A medium could genuinely possess psychical powers, but still see the need for whatever reason to cheat and use tricks from time to time. Call a fig a fig, certainly, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. As Browning says through Sledge's mouth, You've heard what I confess. I don't unsay a single word. I cheated when I could, wrapped with my toe joints, set sham hands at work, wrote down names weak in sympathetic ink, rubbed odic lights with ends of phosphor match, and all the rest. Believe that? Believe this. By the same token, though it seemed to set the crooked straight again, unsay the said, stick up what I've knocked down. I can't help that it's truth. Somehow I vomit truth today. This trait of mine, I don't know, can't be sure, but there was something in it, tricks and all. These incidents and accidents were only a small, if important, part of Robert Browning's life. Between his birth in 1812 and death in 1889, he established himself as one of the foremost English poets and playwrights of the century. By the time of his death in 1889, he was seen as more than, so to speak, just a poet. He was a philosopher who through poetry and prose commented on fundamental questions of Victorian society and politics. And on the 7th of April of 1889, some eight months before his death, Browning was at a dinner party hosted by his friend, the portrait artist Rudolf Lehmann. Many other notable guests were also present, including our good friend Colonel Gouraud and his brand new perfected phonograph. Luckily for us, Gouraud convinces Browning, who perhaps had had a few drinks by that point, to record into the phonograph. Browning attempted to recite his poem, How They Brought the Good News from Ghent to X. This is what survives of that recording. I'm extremely sorry that I can't remember the old person. 
If you couldn't quite get that, what happens is that after trying to recite his poem, he pauses and says, I'm terribly sorry, but I can't remember my own verses. But one thing I shall remember all my life is the astonishing something by your wonderful invention. After a pause, he says his name, and everyone in good spirits responds with a rousing round of hip hip hooray. It never gets old. But people do. And eight months later, Browning was dead. If you recall, around the time Edison first released his tinfoil phonograph, he wrote an essay titled The Phonograph and Its Future. In it, he predicted that for the purpose of preserving the sayings, the voices, and the last words of the dying member of the family, as of great men, the phonograph will unquestionably outrank the photograph. Edison refers here to the Victorian practice of post-mortem photography, a tradition that resulted in fascinating and often creepy photographs that are easily found if less easily forgotten, with a Google image search. In fact, let's do it together. So Google Victorian post-mortem photography. All right, so I get some previews that are a bit weird. Click on images. Ah, weird. If you're looking at the photos now, you notice that one striking aspect of the tradition is that the corpses were often posed with their favorite toys and pets, as well as with living siblings and relatives. It might seem morbid to us, but in their time the photographs were loved and treasured objects, meant to celebrate and memorialize the lives of the deceased. Historian Pat Jalland, in her book Death in the Victorian Family, states that likenesses of the dead were vitally important for the Victorians as therapeutic aids in the process of grieving. Edison hoped that sound recordings would function in much the same way, as treasured reminders of the sounds of voices that are still. Such a tradition never quite caught on, one reason of course being that, unlike with photography, you couldn't record someone's voice after they died. What did begin to happen, at least in the UK, and largely through the efforts and energy of Edison's representative, Colonel Gouraud, was the start of a collection of great voices. In the course of this series, we've already heard Gouraud's recordings of William Gladstone, Arthur Sullivan, and of course a few minutes ago, Robert Browning. He also made recordings of, among others, Florence Nightingale, John Irving, and Alfred Tennyson, some of which we'll hear in future episodes. It's only natural that as many of the men and women recorded were already in their later years, some of them soon began to die. This created the beginnings of an archive of the voices of dead public figures. As the practice of postmortem photography indicates, in the Victorian era, death and funerals were much more of a public fascination and visual spectacle than they are today. Families, particularly in the middle parts of the 19th century, would spend relative fortunes on lavish displays of black horses, ostrich feathers, feasts, professional mourners, and whatever else they could just about save up for and afford. At the same time, then as now, the culture of celebrity was hugely important. Well, putting these two things together, it follows that great deaths were hugely significant moments of the 19th century. All that being said, the values and practices of death weren't fixed throughout the period, but were constantly changing. In 2002, historian Stephen Garton argued that the practices of death shifted from a high point of the Victorian cult of death in the 1850s towards a simplification of mourning ritual 
and the gradual disappearance, clearly evident by the 1890s, of excessive public displays of grief and mourning. At the same time, in the 1890s, with its explosions of new technology and mysticism, the mysterious realms of life and death were beginning to overlap. Which brings us back to Browning. We open the review of reviews and see an illustration depicting the controversial first anniversary memorial of Robert Browning's death. Underneath the picture, in a gothic font, sits the title, A Voice from the Dead. In the image, two ladies and four gentlemen are sitting around a table, all with hearing tubes connecting their ears to a phonograph sitting on the table in the center of the illustration. Giro stands behind the table in the center, operating the machine. The caption reads, The above group represents a notable moment in the history of science and literature. The voice of the poet Browning, preserved by the phonograph, was being heard after death. It was the very first occasion on which science had reproduced the actual voice of a dead man. Every word, says Colonel Gouraud, was perfectly distinct and of lifelike fidelity. Right, so that was a quote. A few weeks later, on the anniversary of Browning's funeral, a more public seance was held, which was described and discussed in various articles, essays, commentaries, and illustrations in the following months and even years. How the story went was that Gouraud, along with the notable philologist Dr. Furnival, who was the president of the London Browning Society, and the cleric and writer Reverend Hawes, all of whom were in the image I described earlier, arranged with the Browning family to reproduce the dead poet's recorded voice for a select group of friends and dignitaries at a private ceremony on the anniversary of his funeral. The various transcripts of the Browning cylinder that appeared in the media were fairly accurate, if not matching exactly with what was spoken on the cylinder. So, what did people make of it all? This extraordinary seance, as it was referred to in the Bristol Mercury, prompted both approval and disgust. Certainly, many found the event distasteful. William Kingsland, a contributor to poet lore, wrote that the cheers reported at the anniversary seem out of place. It must have been at best but a painful pleasure to have listened to the cheery voice of the dead poet. Kingsland concludes by stating that it was a relief that such resurrections were going to be rare, and that the instrument would be closed for a generation. The event was further criticized in an article appearing in The Speaker on the 20th of December of 1890. The writer lampoons the event as little more than a self-interested publicity stunt on the part of Furnival, Gouraud, and Hawes, adding that a fair judge of parasites would instantly detect the chances afforded by a phonograph to that little odd group. To the writer, it seemed that the publicizing of the affair was as important, if not more so, than the event itself. He writes, Does anyone believe that the end for which the little company had met was really accomplished before Mr. Hawes had written to the Times and carried himself yet another furlong on the path to notoriety by clinging not, as usual, to a great man's coattails, but to a great man's shroud? The figure of Gouraud, perhaps as an American outsider of sorts, was left somewhat unscathed in his attacks. The vitriol was reserved for Hawes, and to a lesser extent, Furnival. The writer's anger was due not only to the self-interested motives of the trio, but also to the fact that Browning was not even properly memorialized by the seance. He notes, Browning butchering his one verse, the dead poet dragged back to Edison House to bear witness to one of the most foolish amenities of his life. These were grievous in all conscience. Browning's memory lapses were at odds with the notions of respect and solemnity expected of a memorial event. 
In an era of carefully constructed and sentimental elegies, obituaries, and epitaphs, the inability of Browning to successfully recall his poem was seen by many to be out of place in a resurrection of the great poet. A few weeks later, on New Year's Day, the Standard reported on the event from a different perspective, perhaps in part as a response to the criticisms we've discussed. The article focused on justifying the event, stating that Gouraud was extremely unwilling to cooperate until he learned that the request was from the Browning Society. This assured him that, as guardian of the cylinder, he would not be failing in his duty to the public and the memory of Browning by allowing it to become the object of the gaping crowds. This suggests that it was the duty of the custodian of a great voice to only allow worthy listeners to hear the recording. While everyone was welcome to read transcripts of the cylinder and news of the event, Decency required that only the privileged should listen to the sound. The use and depiction of listening tubes. In addition to invoking modernity and implying the highest possible quality of sound reproduction, also emphasized Guru's authority and control over the sound of the recorded voice. In the article, the writer shares Guru's justification regarding the appropriateness of listening to the voice of the dead in the first place. If we still carried the hair of our beloved ones in lockets, and were not afraid to look on their faces in photographs, he could not see any real reason from any sound sentiment that should make us shrink from hearing the sympathetic tones of their voices. The time was coming when it would be considered as much a duty to record the voices of our great men as we now considered it to submit their features to the photographic lens or the brush of the painter. Though there were disagreements over the taste of the event, On both sides, writers seemed to either accept or support the fact that the recording was to be locked away and rarely, if ever, heard again. Everyone agreed that the recording itself, putting aside the questionable events of the anniversary, was a valuable and fragile treasure that should be protected and preserved. One of the articles noted that every time the cylinder was used, it was exposed to some risk and became more or less worn. In addition to deterioration, there were concerns over the brittleness of the material, and the ease with which a cylinder could break. Accordingly, several articles detailed the care with which the Browning cylinder was handled. These examples go to show that while in principle, phonography meant that voices would never die, in specific instances, the cylinder was considered as a fragile surrogate body for the voice, subject to both decay and destruction. Therefore, without proper care, great voices would be lost again. And even with proper care, each replay took one further away from perfect quality. This latter fact probably helps explain why there was such concern over who got to listen to the Browning recording. Well, I for one am happy that I'm able to freely share the sound and you are able to freely listen. That is, if you can afford headphones and internet and computers and all that, I suppose. The dream is always shifting. We are floating above two rooms now. In the first, Robert Browning is sitting around a table with notable companions. At the head of the table, the medium Daniel Hume is using newly discovered spiritual power to channel messages from Browning's dead son to the living. In the second room, some 35 years later, Robert Browning's body lies a moldering in his grave, as the old song goes. Though, it's quite a nice one, in Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey. Meanwhile, at the head of the table, surrounded by notable companions, George Edward Gouraud is using newly discovered technological power to channel messages from the dead Robert Browning to the living guests. What do we make of this parallel? Personally, I feel that the earlier spiritual moment, fraudulent though it may have been, constructed both the form and meaning of the technological moment that followed. The acoustic voice of Robert Browning reproduced in the second room through listening tubes was the voice of the dead Robert Browning speaking to the living. 
the intervening layers of technology, to which we can now add digital reconstruction and compression, are practically irrelevant to the general experience of recorded sound, then and now. The fundamental experience is one of seance, of a communication from a dead soul to a living soul, regardless of whether or not the original speaker is still alive. Sound recordings function, like film, on the power of that illusion. We lie to ourselves, and then convince ourselves that it's the truth, because it's what we want to believe, and believing makes it true, even though we know it's a lie. In how we interact with technology, and I suspect in many more avenues of life, we are sludge. I tell you, sir, in one sense, I believe nothing at all, that everybody can, will, and does cheat. But in another sense, I'm ready to believe my very self, that every cheat's inspired, and every lie quick with a germ of truth. As ever, thanks for listening, and wake up. (laughs) 